2: On the podcast today, we have Ben Recky, a sick American and an award winning narrative and documentary filmmaker. He's worked with the Coen brothers, George Clooney, and Cal Penn on various films, including his own productions. On the documentary side, you co directed a series on PBS called The Hidden Vote, which profiled minorities who support Trump. And most recently, your documentarian debut, you released The Reunited States last month whose executive producers include van jones and megan mccain congrats on the release it's an awesome film both gilwin and i have devoured it and, and really enjoyed it uh, and we're very excited to welcome you to the podcast
0: thanks so much for having me I'm, I'm excited to talk to you guys
2: awesome well before we dig into your latest film we want to start and we always like to start our, our, our shows with an understanding of our guest's american story so what's your american story
0: I grew up in Northern California in the early days of Silicon Valley. Uh, my dad was an IIT Bombay graduate uh, Punjabi wow. speak, and came Smart. to this country. Yeah. And he credits, you know, the space race uh, in the Cold War as the reason he was granted a visa to, to come in and go to engineering school in Michigan. And uh, my mom was a nurse in the Air Force, blue, blonde-haired, blue-eyed American from Connecticut. And they were pen pals for three years. They, oh, yeah, that's romantic. Yeah, it's, yeah. Such, a, it's such a... That's old school. Old, yeah, times. DM, DMing her old school. That's right, yeah. We actually <laughs> drop it in the mail. But um, <laughs> they sliding into your uh, post box. Mail box. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> They, they didn't meet, you know, they wrote letters for three years. And then the first weekend that they met, he proposed to her and she said, are you crazy? No, I don't know you. Like, what are you talking about? And he said, well, listen, I'm, I think I'm going places. I think you should come with me and uh, just give it a think. And, you know, six months later, she came around to the idea um, that it would be a great idea. And so they ended up moving to California. He got a job. Working in software uh, in the early 70s. Uh, and so when my sister and I were born in the late 70s, uh, we ended up going to church one weekend and Gurdwara the next. And I think that was a really amazing insight into not only different types of faith, but to different cultures and different perspectives. And so it was. Uh bridge building, I guess, is something that's been part of me since the beginning, kind of reconciling these different viewpoints. Um, and yeah, that's where the story began.
2: What made you want to become a filmmaker? What, was there like a particular moment that solidified this as your passion?
0: Well, growing up, there was a, a neighbor who had a video camera and we used to make sort of backyard movies. And then <clears throat> when I moved neighborhoods, I... I use the family video camera to start shooting stuff in the backyard. And it was just Indiana Jones short films and emulating stuff that we really liked. But I guess it was in high school uh, where we did a, our first kind of hour length film that we spent a year on and shot on weekends and put together a story that, you know, That's was cool. cool. Yeah, it was a it was a big, you know, learning curve just because we'd taken all these little camera twicks and and storytelling techniques and put it into a large story, a large film, and we rented out the local movie theater in our town and and hosted a screening for like 400 That's people. So cool. It was really fun. And actually not only for me was at the moment, but I think for my dad because, you know, <laughs> obviously with Indian parents that have very like strong ideas about what the children should do for a living it was a big deal for him to come around and be, he was tearing tickets in the theater as people were coming in and started to realize maybe there is a business here. And so that's when he kind of, you know, uh, agreed to let me go to film school at NYU. And then, you know, from there, it was really a, another sort of like Indian connection that that got me onto the set of the Coen Brothers film was uh, an old IIT friend of his, was a filmmaker now called Jagmundra, and his daughter, Smithy, was working uh, as a production coordinator on this Coen Brothers film. And so he got me the interview. um, And, you know, once you're in the door, it's everything that you do and say that gets you the job. Um, But definitely that having that kind of community always helps. Um, And so working on the Coen Brothers film was the first Hollywood production $30 million movie and George Clooney and just seeing how a set is run especially with those guys who are just so particular in their style it was a huge learning curve and took everything I learned in film school and threw it out the window in terms of like how to scale this um and then yeah I guess it was after college we had I had done a a short film uh with another Punjabi half Punjabi uh, American filmmaker called Adam Balalo and We had done a short film in school about graffiti writers and we used that as a tool to raise funding for the feature film, Bomb the System. And we made that when I was 23, learned a lot about how to shoot guerrilla style in the streets of New York, Um, but it it went pretty far. It premiered at Tribeca, was nominated for an Independent Spirit Award. We sold it to Palm Pictures. And so that's kind of where things kicked off.
1: Aside from the Coen brothers, who are your film influences?
0: You know, more recently, uh, there's, I've, I've, it's, it's sort of an eclectic mix, but there's a lot of newer filmmakers like Denis Villeneuve, who did, uh, uh, he's The Dune is his new movie, um, but he did, uh, gosh, a series of French Canadian films, but I'm forgetting the big one with Benicio del Toro, uh, and Josh Brolin, and then. Kerry Fukunaga is another one. He's a half Japanese filmmaker, uh, did the new Bond film, but had amazing films leading up to this, Beasts of No Nation and uh, Sin Nombre. Um, but I, I really, if there's one filmmaker I could kind of point at and say that's the career I'd want to have, it's Paul Greengrass, who did you know United 94 and uh, Bloody Sunday. Um, he did all the Born Identity movies but he's a very sort of like verite filmmaker where he tells stories about the world around us that challenge us to see ourselves differently. And so, yeah, that's just a handful of them right there.
2: Well, wait, hold on. What happened to Blumhouse Productions? I saw, saw you were working in Hindi horror films. Tell us a little bit about that.
0: Yeah, well, so I uh, I took a sort of unconventional turn after like writing and directing and producing some independent films. I realized that, you know, Almost anyone can make a movie nowadays with technology uh, that's out there. Very few people can make a good movie and almost nobody can sell a film and get it seen. And so I wanted to go work in distribution to understand how films are bought and sold and financed and put together so that I wouldn't be at the mercy of other people uh, to do that for me. And so I went to work initially at a company in LA called I Am Global and I Am Global was owned by Reliance Entertainment. That was part of the reason I went there, a big Indian conglomerate who was pouring money into Hollywood at the time, and this was their independent finance arm, and so it was much more fast-moving, wheeling, dealing. We were, you know, doing 20 movies a year, and one of the divisions was horror films, and we, you know, the company was formed on the success of Paranormal Activity, and that was, uh, you know, obviously a uh, put Jason Blum on the map that was a film that he had championed for a year that everyone passed on and then went to make 200 million dollars worldwide and so then he got his production deal with us and so we were kind of in on Blumhouse on the bottom floor and I awesome. truth be told was not a huge horror movie fan I uh, I they they scare the heck out of me but I you know was kind of by, by proxy, you know, put in touch with like the team and how to shape them and develop the scripts and watch the edits. And my job often was to make, make scary films scarier, which was like, oh, wow. not something I ever signed up for, but it's a good business. It's one of the only models where you can do a film for $5 million and it might make a hundred million dollars. Um, and quite often they do. And so uh, at the time, Jason Blum had been approached by uh, an agent to open a Hindi horror film division and take his brand international. And I heard about it and called Jason and I said, listen, I've, I've worked in India. I've, I've spent a lot of time in Bollywood. If you ever need any help out there, let me know. And he said, well, come work with us. Yeah, absolutely. I'll here. take that. <laughs> yeah. And so I was the person on the ground in India, there was a production company out there called Phantom Films, Anurag Kashyap and Vikas Bale and uh, Vikram Atwani that was the Indian producers along with Jason. And so my job was to liaise between the two companies and kind of help uh, identify projects and green light them. Uh, I was doing that for about a year until my project got greenlit, the Ashram, um, and that's the one with Cal Penn. And so I left, you know, when they went into production on Ghoul, which was the the main f- project that came out of that. Um, and so I know, you know, those filmmakers out there and it's a really exciting sort of side story, but uh, I don't know if I'll be doing horror films myself per se, but I really learned a lot from the process.
2: They should have just remade Paranormal Activity in India. That would have been freaky <sighs> enough.
0: Yeah. They're, they've been talking about remaking something like The Purge and a few other things out there. Um, and,
1: <laughs> the, I, India the India
0: Purge. Oh my god! Oh, yeah. <laughs> which would be crazy. It would well, be. crazy.
1: One thing I got to ask you because you've been in the film game now for a while, and it has evolved so dramatically. I mean, this is a co- big debate in film today of, of modern film of how much comic book movies have have started to dominate it. Um, major directors have have commented on this I mean, what are your thoughts on modern film today as opposed to what it was even you know a decade two decades ago uh
0: it's you know my when i went to my grad program at sc the the dean kind of summed it up for us where he basically said you know we're now hollywood is now making movies for predominantly people that don't speak english and it's because the international business is so big that 70 percent of these revenues are coming from outside of the u.s that you have to make visual content with the most simple story to speak to the most people. And that's fine. I think there's an audience for that. Um, It's not, it it has been at the expense of more thoughtful cinema. Flip side of that, the streaming platforms have just gone bonanza and filled that void. So what used to be called art house cinema is now called like series, like really high end uh, engaging thoughtful series. And so I think there's room for everything. Um, I do worry that the uh, trends of people wanting to go to the films to watch stuff other than blockbuster movies will continue to, to go, that'll just disappear. But it's making room for it. And ultimately it's the consumer's choice too. It's not you know something you can force feed to people. People have to want to see it. And so towing that line has always been the challenge um, so I'm I'm more optimistic. There's more content getting made now than ever. It's just not always going to go to the theater.
2: Well, speaking of thoughtful cinema, let's pivot to documentaries and and kind of understand how you started in that space. I, it seems like from from your IMDb that the first major documentary series you did was a co-direction of a, a PBS thing called uh, The Hidden Vote. What was that experience like? Can you tell us a little bit about that?
0: Yeah. I, well, like after 2016, after the election, like a lot of us, I was trying to find ways uh, that my work could help inform navigating this new reality. And I, you know, was always drawn to uh, nonfiction, just even in the research that I had to do for some of these films. It's very research intensive. And I had just done a film in the Philippines um, that was about the drug wars out there, a fictional film. And the level of research I had to do to tell that story, I was just like, if I had a camera by my side, this would be an entire documentary on its own. And so I had gotten introduced to a journalist called uh, Aditya Sambamurti, who was working in San Francisco for The Guardian. And he was a video journalist and he had done a lot of these short form sort of series on different aspects of the US for, for a British audience. And we started batting around ideas and it was sometime pretty soon after the election that I started to realize uh, I took an Uber ride and my Costa Rican mid fifties female uh, Uber driver was, had voted for Trump and was, was explaining to me why he was a great decision. And instead of, you know, like being combative with her, I was genuinely curious and I just wanted to understand where she was coming from. And it started to dawn on me that there was, you know, a lot more people like her that weren't getting covered in the media. And, and 31% of Latinos voted for him, 18% of Muslims voted for him, uh, 41% of women voted for him. And just a lot of like, you know, unconventional wisdom that was uh, not getting a lot of that emphasis. It wasn't just a moderate white American phenomenon that led to Donald Trump. And so I I batted this idea around and we ended up getting funding from PBS to shoot five episodes. And so we followed Muslims for Trump and LGBT for Trump. Again, not trying to like shame anyone or change their mind, but genuinely trying to listen um, and hopefully see and hear each other better. And that's when it really dawned on me the power of nonfiction uh, cinema to change the way we see ourselves and the world around us. Do you think
2: that this this kind of like unique community is more indicative of a larger, I guess, zeitgeist within this country?
0: Yeah, it, it was definitely inspiring um, to to understand and unpack people's behavior. And um, you know, for instance, uh, the, why would it, why would Muslims vote for Donald Trump? He had a Muslim ban, and you know, it, it would be seemingly against your own best interest. But when you dive into it there's divisions within the Muslim community, there's Shia and Sunni conflict, and there's ideas that maybe he's keeping out the bad Muslims. And so it, it really struck down the idea that communities are monolithic, that minority communities, you know, all follow the same pattern. And, what, you know, when you think about it like that, it's much more common sense. And a lot of it, you know, comes down to issues of you know, where you stand religiously on on, on pro-life uh, or pro-choice, Uh, For the Latino community, especially a lot of people that support Trump is for religious reasons. Um, And so it starts to make a lot more sense when you look at it. And, and again, you know, trying to do it in a way that was not judgmental it to be honest, it took a lot of time and energy to get people to trust us because these were all people that voted for Trump and saw us as left leftist filmmakers working with PBS and the hardest part of doing this was spending weeks and sometimes months convincing people that we were not out to have some gotcha type interview; that we were there to genuinely listen to them, and and everyone that we worked with was was proud of what we achieved together. And so, I uh, it did it felt like it got overlooked, like it got released online. And there's a you know pretty decent. Uh, I'm very proud of how they came out, but the. Potential for the project, I don't think was realized. And that's what inquired me to probe deeper and go deeper into these stories and see uh, why that was the case and how to tell stories that might reach more people. Ultimately, that's what led to the reunited States.
1: How did you get approached for this? Because this is, you know, I'm in the political world and this, this documentary is kind of a big deal in the political space because of the names behind it. So how did, how did you get approached to direct this?
0: It, I. I I like most of the stuff I do, I generate it, uh, I generated it on my own. Like I, you know, was really passionate about this idea of how people um, can bridge our divides or examine their own biases to in order to be ready to talk to other people. And it was when I saw Susan Bros speak at an event, you know, Susan is the mother of Heather Heyer, who was killed when the car ran through the crowd in that counter protest in Charlottesville. And Susan, you know, after losing her daughter, was able to speak with such clarity about the need to have difficult conversations to avoid further violence. And I was someone who, like a lot of people, was really passionate uh, about politics after 2016 and and in a way that was uh, emotional and unstable and, you know, was uh, angry. And, And here was someone who had way more reason to be angry than I ever did, and instead of being angry, she was a voice of reason, and that hit me like a ton of bricks, that this woman had wisdom that could help the rest of us, and so I approached her, and I asked if I could, you know, I said, I don't know how or why, but I really want to be a part of telling your story, because I think this, your you know, your uh, wisdom could help a lot of people, and she kind of like, you know, vetted me and was, you know, she's like, listen, I don't mean to be rude, but where are you coming from? Who are you? There are people that are angry at me from both sides. I have death threats against me, you know, because they think I'm a crisis actress. And so I really need to know what your intentions are. And I just poured my heart out to her and told her why I wanted to do this and that there was hers would be one of several stories that we would profile um, to show people that there's multiple ways to bridge these divides. And eventually she let us Follow her on the first anniversary of Charlottesville, and so that was our first day of shoot was that opening shot of the film um and you know we were basically at her side during this really emotional day where hundreds of reporters were trying to get to her, and we had this deep dive quiet moments with her and that sort of snowballed into meeting the author who wrote the book, and he introduced me to the rest of the the cast
1: i mean that that day actually were um, Charlottesville. I mean, it's seared into my own memory. And I remember even as an organization, you know, Sean and I had to make a bunch of decisions on how we proceed after Charlottesville because it affected, I mean, I remember that night, I could not even go to sleep given how traumatic it was. And uh, we, had to, we had to take our own tact we go with our raw emotional feelings of how we feel about the situation or um, do we continue down the path of our own uh, mission, which is uh, call people in and don't call them out. And uh, we, we decided to continue to go down that path. And I think it was inspiring for me to watch in the film, someone who has every reason to be a 5,000 times more angry than we were to to go not only go down that path, but in many cases devote her life to it.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, you bring up a really good point, and you know it's important to acknowledge that in times of great tragedy and strife comes great hope and opportunity. Uh, you know, the Charlottesville for Susan Bro was the most tragic event. Uh, it was a trauma on the nation, a trauma on the city, a trauma on racial divisions. And a very personal trauma for her. And instead, she's taken it all the way to the halls of Congress to pass anti-racism bills. And, you know, for me, that that event is what inspired me to make this film to give people hope. And it's also what inspired Joe Biden to run for president. And so I think it's really important to acknowledge that tragedy can lead to innovation and hope.
2: I just, just for the listeners, I'm going to quickly kind of walk through what the film's about. And, and I don't want to give away too much because I highly urge everyone who's listening to this to take a look at the film and, and enjoy it for what, is, what it shows. Uh, but it intersperses the story of vastly different Americans, including an independent running for governor of Oklahoma, a young Indian guy starting a, millennia, a millennial civics organization. Of course, the mother of Heather Hare, um, the woman who was run over in Charlottesville, and, and of course the most interesting of, of, the, of, of the stories I thought, at least in terms of what they were trying to do, a Republican strategist and his wife uh, taking their family and traversing the country to understand the point of view of, of all kinds of Americans. And it really you know, brought the emotion out of me and I'm, I'm not one to, to really shed a tear all the time, but this really got to me. And what was the experience like being there and filming that story? And how does it change you when you hear them live? Like, it, I felt how it changed me hearing it, you know, after the fact. But to be there in that moment, what's that like?
0: It was incredibly moving. I mean, these stories of people, you mentioned the Levertons, the Republican family who traveled in an RV to all 50 states, they were really on a journey of self-discovery. Like, they thought the problem was outside, uh, and they realized the problem was within them. And that's true for all of us to a certain ex- extent that we're all responsible for othering people that we disagree with. And, you know, to say something, even on the left, to say something like everyone who voted for Trump is a racist is a form of prejudice. And that's a, that's something that, you know, I've had to struggle with myself is where I thought I was fighting the good fight. Uh, I might actually be part of the problem. And that ownership and agency over what we say, think, and do is everything, and, and that we all have a role to play in bringing our country back together, and so uh, being there in those scenes, I got to travel the country places I'd never been before. I went to 20 states that I had never set foot in and got to see and interact with Americans of all different walks of life, and And just seeing that there's parts of this country that look like a third world country and that, you know, to say that we're all Americans and we all have the same opportunities and we can go as far as we want is not true. There are mass inequalities and there's probably 100 different versions of America depending on the color of your skin, what language you speak, uh, your social, you know, economic status, your gender and the country looks very different to you based on those factors, and also the country looks differently upon you. And so, I think uh, the most powerful moments were seeing those transformations happen. You know, a lot of people told us early on, "You need conflict to have drama, and this film won't work unless you have that." And I would always just push back and say, "I think transformation is incredibly dramatic when you're watching someone undergo this self-examination and their worldviews collapsing and." their own biases are uh, being confronted, that's very dramatic. And so we hope that even though people might not have been in those situations, um, like the, you know, the woman in particular who lost her baby, um, which is one of the hardest scenes in the film, most powerful scenes, you know, you might not be able to interact with someone uh, and hear that personal story, but the cinema allows you to be a fly on the wall to the human experience and to hopefully mentally model some of these interactions moving forward and say, maybe I can have conversations like that too, if I'm more curious.
1: Yep. I'd
0: love to get your reactions
1: on two modern phenomenon that has come out of this situation on the left and on the right. So on the left, you know, I, I admittedly am a member of the left, but at the same time, I am concerned about, you can call it cancel culture, you could call it, you know, you know, being woke, don't, you can call it a lot of different things. But there has been an increasing ramp up of rhetoric that I that has been verified through data and in my own life experience where people are feeling less comfortable expressing themselves with other people. And, uh, you know, just in my own life, i, remember I was walking down the street, this is after Trump was elected. And a guy stopped me on the street, uh, he had stopped me for something else. But he eventually wanted to ask me, oh, what's that? Why do you wear that turban? And I could tell he was Asking from a genuine place. And I just, you know, gave him an answer. And actually, we, we have a good answer because we've done the research and we have data that will show what's effective. And that answer was effective, actually. And he was wowed because I told him the turban stands for equality. And then he grabbed my hand afterwards and he looked at me very sincerely. And you could tell his like eyes were welling up. He's like, Thank you for not being mad at me. And um, because he was coming from a genuine place. Wow. And I think that was representative to me um, of this environment that is out there, that people feel like they they cannot reveal their ignorance or they cannot ask questions. And uh, I think that is detrimental to uh, ultimately resolving a lot of the conflicts that we have on a number of spheres. So I mean, what, what are your thoughts on that modern phenomenon? Then I have one question on the right as well.
0: Yeah, I it's such a good point because you know, the intent of holding people to account is, you know, often comes from a good place. Like let's try and all treat each other equally. But the paradox of it is if you don't agree with us, then we can't accept you and you're wrong. And so how can we be inclusive and progressive, but at the same time say, we don't tolerate your point of view. Um, And so I, I, we hope the film and, and more generally ourselves can get to a place where we say, look, we're all on a journey of learning. uh, And why would I punish someone who's at a different stage of the journey because I was once there myself. I used to say and do things 15, 20 years ago that I would be ashamed of now just from my ignorance of not being exposed to uh, people of color or different communities. And so why would I judge someone harshly for being at that place on their journey? And I think that is part of the problem We're shaming people and bludgeoning them very publicly and they're running in the other direction rather than saying, you know, lovingly, Hey, actually maybe what you're saying, can we have an offline conversation instead of this mob mentality where I'm going to drive, you know, thousands of people to your page and just, you know, bash you can can, cancel you can, can you and I talk offline? Cause where real change can happen in this country is one conversation at a time. And I think your example is a really powerful one. If we have enough one-on-one interactions, that's where we really move the needle in people's hearts. It's not by these, you know, lectures or these, you know, big social media uh, attacks. And so-
1: percent. I mean, 100%, I mean, I think we've seen in our own data that we, we, we made more progress actually with conservatives than even with liberals um, because we came in with an open hand instead of a closed fist. Uh, But with conservatives, I also have there is another modern phenomenon I want to bring up with conservatives is there's an increasing embrace of conspiracy theories. And one of my own uh, news consumption habits as of late has been reading family members have gone deep into the conspiracy theory route where it is difficult for even their own family members to reason with them and bringing them back to even some sort of normal base reality. So how how do you close the gap when you have that strain out there that, you know, seemingly people can't even be reasoned with with, with normal facts?
0: Yeah, it's one of the hardest uh, things that we live in now is these two different media ecosystems. I, you know, Van talks about this a lot, um, which I've learned from is, you know, if you look at like the... War of the Worlds situation uh, that happened with Orson Welles and this radio program that was basically a massive disinformation where it was like saying aliens were invaded and people really panicked. One person actually killed themselves uh, out of fear. And we didn't look back and say, well, those people were so stupid. Um, We look back and say that media ecosystem uh, manipulated them. And, and, And so to look on with a little more compassion and say, you know, this isn't something we're going to reason our way through, we're going to have to feel our way through this, because we're in for several years, if not longer, more of this uh, division in our ecosystem. And so I, uh, there's a couple issues that really divide us, you know, um, where we're talking about abortion earlier, or gun rights or immigration, but there are hundreds that we have common ground on. And so, you know, while we might not ever agree on, you know, pro-life or pro-choice, um, it's the majority, it's the will of majority that, that will decide the fate and the future of the course of the country on those issues. You still may disagree with it, but like, it's, and it's your right, but, you know, so why spend so much time and energy on issues that we know will never resolve together? Uh, it's a little different with this, where we're talking about uh, objective views of reality But at the same time, like if we're going to try and talk someone off of a ledge and try and change their mind, it's going to be very difficult because they're going to get defensive. They're going to think I'm, you know, elitist and, you know, looking down on them or it's like an education thing. I think the more curious thing for me has been with my uh, friends who feel this way is to continually ask questions and try and get to the bottom of it and not try and have a spirited debate about facts really genuinely understand where their pain is coming from that's leading them to seek these answers uh, you know when we were growing up the illuminati was was the conspiracy theory of this global you know elite and oppression and that was a leftist idea and it was the same thing because people were feeling oppressed and disenfranchised and now that's shifted over to the right and the characters and the names have changed it's qAnon but it's still the same theory and so let's get beneath that to the pain of where this is hurt is coming from. And that's where we might find common ground.
2: Sounds like a, a political speech to me. I don't know, Ben, is there, is that a, in the, in the books here is it in the cards, but. Uh,
0: I think huh? Storytelling storytelling is uh, where I feel like it can make more of an impact.
2: Well, that's a good uh, transition to my last question. Both of both you, the National Sick Campaign, We Are Six, we're all on the same page. We're trying to use mass media, digital channels, communication to educate our neighbors, explain our differences, create reconciliation, the thing that we need to have the most in this country. But it's hard. I think you know viewership is, is down on mass media. Uh, people live in bubbles, as you mentioned before. The world is a whole wholly different place than where I was 10 years ago and overcoming really hard differences. uh, The quote, if it, you know, the quote from the black minister, it's hard to have reconciliation when you have a boot on your neck and whether that boot is from systemic, you know, racism that's held a community down, or if it's a a, something that uh, a person who, who, reads conspiracy theories and feels like they have a boot on their neck and 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 they've been conditioned to think the way that they are how do we create reconciliation at scale what do we do today to make this change that we need to have in the next five ten years
0: yeah it's the question of our time i think that Reconciliation never properly happened after the two great sins of the founding of the country, genocide and slavery. There was never a serious acknowledgement of wrongdoing like there was after World War II with the Nuremberg trials. No one was held accountable. And so I am not as convinced that reconciliation can happen at a national level of like government intervention, where I think it's really happening is on the individual level. And just looking at the events from... George Floyd last summer and the racial awakening that has happened in the the hearts of millions of Americans since then, it's you know very little, very late, but it's it's a start and it's a it's a huge uh, wave of momentum for people to examine these issues, and so I'm you know hopeful in the end because if we look at where we're going, uh, if we say we can't work this out and that we're you know digging our heels in. That doesn't end well. That goes down to succession or violence or civil war or Rwanda genocide. It's it's very, it's it's you know, there's there's horrifying outcomes if we continue down this path. The only way we turn this ship around is if enough of us say we've had it. We can't continue with we don't want to leave this country for our children with such disarray and division. It's not fair to to, to do this to the next generation. And there are people in every corner of this country that are literally holding this country together right now, and they're in every community and city and building across this great nation, and it's because of them that this country hangs together right now, and and you guys are doing this work, we're trying to do this work with this film, and people can feel it in their hearts that this is the path forward, we need to find a way through our, and we need to do what we can, where we are with what we have, and every day is a choice. And so to me, it may get a little bit bumpier before it gets better, but in the end, this is something that we have to do.
2: Well said. Thanks so much, Ben. We really appreciate you taking the time to join Sick Meets World and and uh, you know give us the scoop on your latest film.
0: Yes, thanks so much, you guys. The Punjabi power. I really appreciate the opportunity. Uh, Sean and Gerwin, we'll be talking soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. If you like the show,
2: please rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Subscribe to Sick Meets World on your favorite podcasting platform and share it with your friends and family. Stay tuned for our next episode, which comes out next month. And of course, be sure to check out the National Sick Campaign website for more information.